0: Welcome to This Girl Cam, where we chat to wonderful women doing fabulous things in pharma. I'm Liv Nixon, and today I'm chatting to Susie Barnes, Vice President for Global Medical Affairs and Head of Specialty Care at GSK. Susie began her career as a GP in the UK, but in 2009 she joined the pharmaceutical industry, having secured a medical advisor role at Servier Laboratories. Five years later she joined GSK and has since travelled the globe leading medical teams worldwide. Susie has tremendous purpose and passion in her work. It was her unwavering patient focus that led her to join the pharma industry in the first place. Currently living in the US, but set to return to the UK in just a couple of weeks, I'm delighted she found the time in her diary to do this interview. So let's get going. Good morning, Susie. How are you?
1: Morning. I'm really good. Thanks very much for having me, live.
0: Oh, you are very welcome. I'm really grateful we managed to find a slot to do that. So thank you so much. Thank you. So, as we said, you're still in the States for now, but I know that's, that's due to change. But first, before we kick all this off, if you don't mind, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you started and where you are now.
1: Gosh, great. Thanks, Liv. I'm Susie Barnes. I am a physician by training and uh, qualified as a doctor a long time ago in 1999 and spent 10 years in the National Health Service in the UK. But actually in 2009, I made the decision after actually a bit of career coaching to enter into the pharmaceutical industry. So I spent five years at a company called Servier Laboratories, and since 2014, I've been with GSK in the medical affairs department, and I have been incredibly privileged to have a little bit of a journey around the world with GSK, and I've worked in the UK, Canada, Japan, and most recently in the US. But as you just hinted there, I'm actually just about to move back to the UK, which I'm really excited about after seven
0: years. That's fantastic. So tell me about your time as a GP, because actually, I think in the years that you were a GP, I was rapping for some of that time. So I'm intrigued to know your perception of industry in those early days. Of
1: course. Yeah. So when I qualified from medical school, I had many friends who were very clear about what they wanted to do, whether it be an orthopedic surgeon, a brain surgeon, a cardiologist. But I wasn't really sure. So I took a bit of a meandering kind of journey through my early years as a junior doctor doing some anesthetics and then latterly thinking, okay, I'll go and be a GP. It was interesting. We did speak to, to reps. We had It was quite difficult when a rep would come and spec you when you'd literally just come out of a surgery for four hours and you were exhausted and had five five home visits to go on to. So I'm not sure I was always particularly open to reps, if I'm really honest. It was interesting coming back and being on the other side and seeing my rep colleagues. It's a really difficult job. I think whether you're a rep or an MSL, it's an incredibly difficult job, but a really fantastic one to start in industry. But at the same time, we did have some great experiences with educational talks and things with the industry. I think what drove me to then consider going into industry was a number of factors. I think I was a, I think I was a good GP. I was very conscientious, but it took everything out of me. And I just didn't really feel that I could ever do everything that I needed to do for the patients. It was very difficult to even get investigations for patients. And you felt like you were always having to create a really big rationale to get a patient referred or an MRI, for example. And I went through career coaching. I remember one of my bachelor's lab supervisors actually went to AZ when I was at medical school. So I'd always had industry at the back of my mind and actually took the leap with a very blind leap, if I'm honest, to go into my first industry job at Servier. But it was, it's turned out, I think, to be the most fulfilling thing that I've ever done. It was great to understand the environment more broadly in terms of the healthcare environment. And actually with my of journey going around the world, really understanding the complexity of the healthcare environments, the regulatory environment, the payer environments has it's been extraordinary. And it's really just built my passion for making sure that we're focusing on the right thing on the patient, what is the right patient outcomes that we're looking for. And then on the other side of things, I really get massive joy out of developing people and seeing people going on their career journeys.
0: Yeah. So is that what you think drives you? Because obviously in those early days and as a GP, it didn't quite give you what you wanted. And then you found that with industry.
1: Yeah, I think when you start off in industry, certainly as a medic, you are often plagued with job bags. I think people who have been in in industry a long time will remember job bags. You're signing off all the promotional material. But obviously being... A medic within industry is much, much more than that. It's really developed over a period of years into much more strategic function. And for me, what's really something that drives me is to ask the questions working with the external community, whether we're talking with our HCPs, with patients, with the payer community, is what is really important? What does good care look like now? But what could good care look like for a patient in five years, 10 years? So it's that long term planning and looking at those long term outcomes and that ability to partner with. The healthcare community to actually try and shape healthcare. That's something that I've learned along the way that is what drives me. And as I've said, seeing leading teams, I've led teams for the last 10 years now. And the joy of of seeing somebody grow within a role, really understand what they're good at, where they need to develop, and then seeing them leap into that that next journey for them and and, under, and enjoying the journey as well. Not just going, okay, I'm getting the next grade, the next role, I'm going vertical. It's what's, what does my journey look like?
0: Yeah, I like that. It's fascinating and understanding people as well, isn't it? The different motivators for people.
1: Absolutely. And everyone's got very different motivators. And I think as a leader, you certainly have to be able to understand what motivates people to really help them develop in the best way.
0: Yeah. So throughout your career, What do you think are some of the moments that you're most proud of? Gosh, most proud moments. I think some of my proudest moments at work have been
1: when I have been working with a high-performing team. And seeing medicines be launched in countries is huge. It really takes an army. And I don't think we realize how much input from so many parts of the business it takes to launch a medicine. I was involved in the launch of a huge medicine, a huge vaccine, sorry, back in, in Canada and then in Japan, again, some really interesting launches, which required us to work hard to understand the environment and help shape the environment around COPD. So chronic obstructive pulmonary disease it was interesting that. In Japan, people didn't understand what COPD was. Actually, everyone was either asthma or asthma and COPD. Nobody really had pure COPD. And actually what we recognized was is it, they did have the same condition that people in the rest of the world did, but they just called it something different. So that in itself was really fascinating to work through. So without going on too much, actually, for me, being part of the team that can see that medicine, get to the hands of the patients that need it. Developing a medicine is beyond just getting through the filing. It's the regulatory filing is the rate limiting step, but payers have got to want to pay for it. And we've got to make sure it's utilized by the right patients and the physicians understand the right patients that can really benefit. So that's something I feel really passionate about my role as a medic. To make sure that we see certainly that last one what does the actual uptake look like it doesn't matter if you've got a license somebody's willing to pay for it if people are not actually using it so there's many things i could share but that's just some examples
0: have there ever been times in your career where you've felt impacted just by your gender by being female
1: gosh this is a really good question honestly in one way no in terms of have i not got roles that I wanted or felt I was legit, legitimately a candidate for. No, I think I've been very lucky in that respect. Have I been environments where there has been, I suppose, slight toxicity around gender and have I experienced harassment? Then, then yes.
0: So tell me a little bit, if you can, a little bit more about that.
1: Gosh, this is a really good question. Environments where it's It was very male-dominated in terms of the treatment of females and disparaging comments of females. And I wasn't always the person involved, but, you know, I've seen it. And it's something that... Interestingly, when I went to Japan, I arrived in Japan in 2018 to be the head of medical affairs and Japan is the most wonderful country. I'm so privileged to have had the opportunity personally, professionally to be there over over three and a half years. But if you think about diversity and inclusion, really the kind of key areas of focus there are female gender and age. When I arrived, many of the people around me were older males. And I was quite a surprise to them being quite a mouthy Brit, an opinionated Brit. And so there was a little bit of an assumption that perhaps I was there, I suppose, for kind of work experience just to tick the box. And of course I wasn't. I was asked to go there. And it's almost started me back on my journey of leadership in terms of how I need to work in a very different way. Where I'd experienced very male-dominated environments in the past, actually, I needed to get to the point where I was seen as an equal and actually then became a leader of most of those people. But also then, how do I really focus on diversity and inclusion in that environment where I, don't, I haven't been brought up in that culture to really just spend time understanding it and also helping other females. So for example, we set up a women's leadership initiative in Japan in 2020 and much later than many of, other, of our other markets. And it was really fantastic to see the growth over time. And it was really, it was very difficult at times. And we had some very funny experiences, but we had a fantastic leader there, that the general manager there, and real focus from the lead team on making sure that we'd got it right. And it was interesting from a female perspective where you're trying to be a role model mm-hmm. to help other females. Often we say that females should have it all, married kids, a fantastic career as a leader. But actually I'm not married and I don't have kids and that's just where my journey has taken me, not necessarily by choice, but being able to role model to people to say you can have it all and then feeling slightly guilty to say I don't have kids so I can't, I don't know what it's like for you. But then realizing that everybody's journey is really different and I can be a role model in different ways as well. So. That was a real light bulb moment for me in Japan in terms of how to support other females and also other males. Actually, it's not just about females saying, I need a seat at the table. Actually, you need everyone to understand why diversity, including diversity of thought and experience, is really important in any high-performing
0: team. Absolutely. You touched on that there, Susie, about the fact that you don't have children and that you're not married. And in a way, it sounds, and correct me if I'm wrong that you've felt that's almost been a bias that you've experienced or maybe that you've put upon yourself, that, that feeling of guilt.
1: Yeah, I think which, whichever way you look at it, we all have our guilt and our own self-bias. And it was really interesting. I ended up leaving the UK in 2016 to go to Canada for my first international experience. And that really came about because I split up from a previous relationship and it gave me that openness to say, okay, I'm going to go and have an adventure. During the pandemic, I worked with a fantastic leader who was at GSK. He was now doing um, actually working in the kind of diversity and inclusion field as a speaker. And we did a session with my Japanese team on diversity and inclusion and belonging, the sense of belonging and how we make each other and help each other belong as part of the team. She then asked me to go and do a clubhouse interview during the pandemic. And it was a representation of everybody, their different lifestyles, having kids, not having kids, being a a single parent. And I shared my journey. And one of the other panelists said to me, wow, Susie, that's really amazing to hear your story. But quite frankly, if I didn't have kids, I wouldn't know what my purpose was. And I've grimaced through it and got through the rest of the interview with the panel. and But it really impacted me. It, I was really quite offended and I it made me feel as though I wasn't good enough. And clearly I know I am good enough. And it was a really quite seminal moment for me to understand what is my purpose. And for me, my purpose is My family and friends, it's enjoying life, but it's also, I have a massive purpose around what I do. I really feel strongly about even that little step by step at a time, we have the ability to really impact patients' lives. So I feel very confident in that, but that was quite a knock. And I recognize that maybe other people could feel that as well. So I have a real role to play there.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's really important that you're able to have that moment of reflection and recognize that it had impacted you had offended you had upset you but then had that time to say okay what is important to me what is my what is my purpose and you managed to turn on its head into something much more positive Um, absolutely and that in itself is really inspiring for everyone I think I do think that's important about this podcast because I think the more conversations we have like this with different people coming with their own experience of whatever that might be I think just it just brings the conversation to the table,
1: doesn't it? Yeah. If we can help other people reflect on their own situations and say, This is me, this is what I love doing and actually just reevaluate and think I am good enough. I don't yeah. have kids, but actually I am good enough.
0: Yeah. And look at what you've achieved in your career so far. So far. <laughs> it all feels honestly, it always feels
1: a little bit like a bit of a trial and error, but I've really been incredibly lucky honestly i've had leaders and mentors and have really invested in me over over the last few years and i'm incredibly grateful for that and i feel like i always have the responsibility to pay it forward which is why i'm so passionate about supporting other people to develop because development is it's not a passive thing it's something you really have to think about and there's an account real accountability on the individual To understand what drives you, what motivates you, really what you're good at, but really what you're not good at. And that kind of open and being honest with yourself. So enjoying it, I see quite a lot in industry of people really just wanting to go to get that next grade, that next job. And I really encourage people to say that is important. It is important, but at the same time, enjoying everything you do and feeling like you've got that lovely balance of adding value and developing at the same time is really important.
0: Yeah. GSK are obviously fairly hot on this, the mentoring and that. It's obviously something, yes. I spoke to Deb about it, as you've probably heard. Yeah. And she talked a lot about having so so many incredible mentors. And again, she used that and she likes to pay it forward as well. Do you have mentors outside of GSK or do you mentor people outside of GSK or is it very company focused? It's predominantly company focused and it's often
1: very informal. And I often get people pinging me and saying, we have a chat. And I'm that the whole mentoring thing is it's like a big spider's web of networking because you're able to connect people as well. So that's one of the mm. things I love about it. I do keep in touch with people outside who perhaps I've worked with and often will have informal conversations w- with them. And certainly when there's potential roles that I can connect people with, but it is predominantly in-house. We have this, the Women's Leadership Initiative, which I think is really active there is a lot of support out there formally, but also informally. And again, I I talk to my team all the time about it. Mentoring is a very personal thing as well. I can suggest mentors to people, but you have to find the right mentor for you and understand what you want to get out of it. Again, it's not a passive experience. It's not just connecting somebody and they're going to just suddenly magically tell you what your journey needs to be. There's got to be a real investment from both sides. They can be really fun. Mentoring people is really fun. You get to know about people in different roles and different parts of the world. And I'm actually also an appraiser for the General Medical Council. So GSK, we do, we have to revalidate our physicians. Um, I appraise other physicians, like, they're from early development, from later clinical development, and it's such a fantastic way of understanding what else is going on in the business.
0: It just keeps things so interesting, doesn't it, chatting to people from
1: all different walks of life. How we learn, it's and it's fun.
0: Okay, so you can't come on this show, I'm afraid, without being asked about your sliding doors moment or without having seen the film Sliding Doors. I should have sent that to you. I English have of- seen like, Sliding Doors. Gosh, it's the, that's a really old one. Gosh. <laughs> Every single guest has come on. asked them what's been your sliding doors moment. And I only had one lady, Mena, so she was like, "I didn't, I hadn't heard of this movie before," <laughs> so she had to ask around. So, have you had sliding doors moments and any in particular that you want to share with us? I think I probably had a lot. I think going into industry is is one of them. It was an incredibly
1: difficult decision to make as a medic because you feel quite alone and everyone thinks you're having a slight midlife crisis and you'll be back in the NHS. So that was definitely one of those sliding door moments because it's really shaped the rest of my life and all the fantastic experiences that I've had. I think the other one really is going to Japan. I was, how I got there was really by serendipity. I wasn't in any... Um, succession plans to be the head of medical in Japan, but it just so happened that you know, somebody called me and said, "Listen, I've just got here. Are you interested in coming and helping out?" And very, um. na- very naively, having never been to Japan but always wanted to work in Asia, said, "Yeah, absolutely." Very naively, and in, ma- in many ways that helped me when I got there. But it's the most wonderful culture and the most fantastic people. It's difficult place to work, but it's the most rewarding place to work because this, we just achieve so much as a team. I feel really lucky to be there. I really miss it still. I miss Tokyo and I miss being able to travel around Japan. definitely a place I would go back to. So that was probably, I keep using the word privilege, but it really was a massive privilege because it, it took me back. Personally, it was a wonderful experience, but from a professional perspective, I had to go back to basics in terms of leadership. Everything I'd learned before had to change and I felt like I was learning again and again. And I think that's really helped me with my kind of subsequent role.
0: Yeah. Why was it such a difficult place to work? Uh, tell me a bit more. It's clearly impacted you hugely, just your time there. It's steeped in the most wonderful
1: culture and tradition. And, but that does come with then the, the flip side of sometimes there are some traditions that you have to work through. Obviously, you're not trying to change a culture, but actually help your teams come together to maybe sometimes work in a different way. And from that, it's not you're on a succession plan. And when you're 50, you become a manager. It's more about how do we get the right people? How do we really foster talent, even younger talents, which would never have happened in the past and really understand how to develop people in a way that is aligned with Japanese culture, but also aligned with what we really needed to achieve for patients in Japan. There was one really interesting experience, and some people around the world might remember this around the Olympics. There was an Olympics minister who basically had a, a committee, and he didn't want another woman on the committee because women speak too much. And it, was, it's, it became very big around the world because it was the Olympics, but it was something, I think, in Japan that people... Although they inwardly didn't agree with that kind of thing. It was very much accepted, but you saw some of students mobilize and start protesting and putting their hands up and saying, okay, this isn't good enough. And that had never happened before. And I think that was a really pivotal moment in Japan. And I think seeing that very slow progression towards equality in Japan, I think it was really interesting. We were able to use that and have great conversations with our teams. And I still communicate with many of my team in Japan now. And I just really lucky to have met them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So just touching back on the sliding doors question, if we go back even further to before becoming a GP, what made you want to become a GP? And if you hadn't, what do you think you would have done? What did you want to be when you grew up? When you oh, were Oh, gosh.
1: I think I wanted to be a doctor for a long time. And my mum tells me of something that happened very early on. I don't know whether I was five or six. But we were reading a book and it was about nurses and doctors. And I pointed to the nurse and said, I want to be a nurse. And my mum said, why don't you want to be a doctor? And I said, well, because girls can't be doctors. What? And she said, they can be doctors. My mum was a teacher and was very driven in, in supporting us to do what we wanted to do. Um, So that probably was quite pivotal. It happened at a really young age. And I think I needed, I think when I was at school, I just really needed, I was very shy at school and I needed something to focus on. I think doing something vocational was really important to me. One of the things I did think about and was, absolutely going to do when I got to medical school was actually join the RAF and be sponsored through. It was all planned out and then I was having far too much fun at medical school and that didn't happen. Oh. So that's perhaps one minor regret. because I think I would have really loved to have had that experience, but it's not that I've been short of experiences despite that. I was—I <laughs> did an elective around Fiji in New Zealand. So for three months we were able to go and work in other parts of the world. So we had some people going off to do ER in Chicago, some people off to South Africa and my friends and I went to a nice tropical island called Fiji.
0: Wow, nice. Yeah, that'll work. <laughs> so, really, I suppose you did just want to be a doctor. And, uh, nurse. I did. Nurse.
1: Yeah, I did. But I, as I said earlier on, I wanted to be a doctor, but then I almost got to being a doctor and then. The, thought oh my goodness what next I don't have that very clear view of where I need to go now and as I said I did two years of anesthetics I went in to be a GP I went to become a GP because I met my ex-boyfriend we wanted to get married and have kids and that felt like the right thing to do and it wasn't as simple as that and being a GP was a really difficult job to do if i hadn't have been a gp and if i was still in clinical medicine now one of the things that i would have done is do women's health so i was a specialist in sexual health and i was a specialist okay. in family planning i loved antenatal care i think i would have probably stuck on that i just didn't want to do obstetrics and gynecology because i would be a terrible surgeon but the other parts of obstetrics and gynecology and women's health was something that was really interested in i actually also set up a I set up a sexual health clinic within Buckinghamshire. I worked with the health commissioners, part of Buckinghamshire council, and they wanted to understand what it would be to bring a, what we call an intermediate care sexual health service. So outside the sexual health clinic where I was working as a clinical assistant and We put a patient together and my surgery said, well, shall we, should we put in a tender for it? So we ended up running this sexual health surgery clinic from a number of doctors clinics around Buckinghamshire. So we had it centrally organized from the Marlow surgery and we were able to offer appointments from people outside the sexual health clinic where it's quite taboo. So we were able to do testing for the worried well, which is really important and it was fun as well. So something that took me away from the kind of day-to-day general practice.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you're coming back to the UK? I am. What's brought that about Canada? It's time, actually.
1: I've had the most wonderful experiences. I've been incredibly lucky. I was in Canada for two years in Toronto, met some fantastic people at work. I went to Tokyo, which was an experience that will be definitely difficult to ever replace. And I've been in the US for year so i'm doing a global role now i'm the head of global medical first specialty care and i can do that in the uk or the us but after seven years it's time i am conscious that many of my team are in the uk i'm conscious that my parents are getting older and also i've got many family and friends in the uk and it feels like it's time to go back and rebuild that community actually so it's probably a personal decision versus a professional one um, that said, it's been really fantastic being in the u s. It's a hugely important and complex market. so the yeah. ability to really understand this market has been invaluable, but it's time. it's I'm really excited to go back home. So I've got about just over two weeks before I head back for good. But obviously, I'll be traveling many times into the u s. and to other countries.
0: do you think that's it for you then in terms of nothing? Oh
1: no, anything goes, but it would have to i'm I think, if anything, I'm quite adaptable and I like change. So it really would always depend on the opportunity. Uh, absolutely. But never say never on
0: anything. No, no, absolutely. Okay, so we've talked about, and I will let you go in a minute. We've talked about what you're most proud of. What are, do you feel are the most significant hurdles that you've had to overcome in your career? Gosh, I do think my career has just been trial and error. But honestly, if I reflect,
1: I think my biggest hurdles have been me. Your own self-belief, I think I'm... On reflection, I think I'm very driven. I'm a problem solver, but also I constantly have myself doubts. I think people often are surprised at that, but imposter syndrome is real. We all want to be brilliant at things and we find it hard when we're not. And I think working through that has been one of the most important things. It's still there when I have a coach that I work with on that, but absolutely. I think that's been one of my biggest hurdles.
0: See, so, yeah. Hearing people like you talk about imposter syndrome is actually a really positive thing, to be honest with you. It's fantastic to hear that because it gives the likes of me hope. I don't know why you're saying that because, look, all the amazing things that you've
1: done, Liz, it's, and I think we need to be open about these things. It's, it's yeah. how un, being open and sharing experiences, is, I love hearing about other people because it, it makes
0: me feel better when I hear that people have had
1: similar experiences.
0: Yeah, but I do think it's an important thing to talk about in terms of it, just managing it, being aware of it, and then how you cope moving forward and learn to shape your career. Like you say, you talk about having a coach, and I suppose that's one really key way of doing it. I had a coach myself for a short time as well, really just to help me understand what my values were, what's important yeah. to me, really just get to the bottom of, okay, what do I actually want? Because Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think being able to focus on what's really important. I think when we're really busy and there's lots going on, you can get to the point where you can't see the wood for the trees and having that mindfulness to be able to pull yourself and say, actually, what's really important? And then the other side of things is work-life balance. And actually, probably that's the other thing that driven me to head back to the UK. And I'm under no illusions that it's the panacea for my work-life balance. But actually, I don't have very much work-life balance here in in the US and understanding when to stop and, you know, how to self-care is how to get the right self-care is really important.
0: Yeah. So have you got things lined up to be doing when you get to London that don't involve work? I have. I've bought a new flat and I've got things I'm doing on the
1: flats. I've got standing invites from around the country to see people that I haven't seen for a number of years. Because You're often flitting into the UK thinking, I've got to see this person. I've got to see my parents and you always end up feeling guilty. That um, you've not managed to see everyone. Yeah, but I've got, I've got family and friends, godsons, and things to, to see and some, hopefully some exciting trips lined up as well.
0: Fabulous. Lisa last week that my guest last week told me that she'd joined a choir. They belt out West End musicals every week oh, no, in London. Sounds- There's one in um, Manchester as well. So I'm gonna join that in the spring. So <laughs> yep.
1: that's a great idea. Actually, one of my hobbies previously, and everyone laughs at me for this, is that I played the clarinet since I was a kid and the saxophone and for about 12 years, I played with the Maidenhead concert band. I loved it. I loved my Monday nights. People from all works of life, we played at anything from Summer Fates. We played at Buckingham Palace at a garden party. We played at Henley Regatta. So anything musical is something I'm really looking forward to getting back into, whether it's the band again or a choir. Absolutely. I'll, I'll,
0: have, I'll introduce you to Lisa. I'm going to join the one in Manchester, definitely. I'll send you the website. It looks amazing. Oh,
1: oh yes, so. please do. Not
0: that you're going to have loads of time. No,
1: but important. Work-life balance.
0: Yeah, exactly. You've been fantastic to chat to as a guest. I really appreciate you taking the time because I know how busy you are. So thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and it's been a lot of fun talking to you and having these conversations just, it does help you reflect on things. But
1: no, really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: You're so well. (laughs) Well, that is it for another episode. I'm taking a break for half term next week, but I'll be back again in two weeks' time with another fabulous guest. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and you're enjoying the podcast in general, please do subscribe if you haven't already and keep spreading the word on social media. As always, go to thisgirlcam.com to see this interview in print and to find out who my guest is in a couple of weeks' time. You can follow me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter and Facebook all under This Thanks again, everyone. Bye for now.